Spring Observing Plans on episode 313 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. Shane, have you been out observing recently? I have not. The weather's been atrocious. Yeah, just just some real light naked eye observing, seeing Venus, you know, in the west uh, around sunset and and uh, a little bit of lunar observing naked eye. But for the most part, that's it. Um, you know, the weather hasn't been great, so I, I haven't been motivated to take any of my astronomy gear outside. I'm with you on that one. I had been looking at the long range forecast and I saw that this past Friday was going to be clear and it was showing that the daytime high was going to be negative five, which isn't too bad considering we've been down into the negative 20s and 30s. And maybe I was thinking the nighttime low might be minus eight, minus nine. Maybe I'd take a run out into the fields. I don't mind observing down to minus 10 to minus 20, even with the wind chill. That's okay. I'm good for that. And then sunset. And it was minus 25 degrees Celsius after the sun went down that day. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's been the weird thing with the weather forecast lately around here. It looks promising until uh, the night of, and all of a sudden it's not so great. Even last night, the the local club was arranging uh, a Messier marathon. And at the start of the day, it was looking pretty good. Um, but by supper time, the forecast had changed to like, light cirrus clouds pretty much all night and uh you know it it was kind of marginal and i didn't bother going because i had some other plans as well but uh that just seems to be the kind of how things have been going around here lately yeah yeah that friday night just i was i was so amped to go and i was thinking even if it's a little colder i'll go if it's a little, little colder i'll go maybe i'll set up in the driveway but minus 25 and it was minus 31 with the wind chill like it wasn't like minus 25 no wind it was minus 25 minus 31 with the wind and i was just like how much observing am i going to do with that temperature not that much yeah exactly i sent you um something to purchase um <laughs> some new wheels refractor combo yeah, this has been for sale for a long time, but it's it's a bizarre telescope. <laughs> if like every aspect of this is bizarre. Um so keep me honest here, Chris. Is it a six inch refractor? Yeah, six inch. I think it's like an F eighteen or something. I, I think it's like F twenty four or something. <laughs> or okay, is that it? Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's it's well, it's extremely long. So the telescope itself is bizarre. And then it's mounted in the back of what I think might be some version of like an El Camino, if anybody's familiar yeah, with that vehicle. It's like the German version of the El Camino. <laughs> yeah. And it's this telescope is on a pier and the pier looks like it's attached to the back of the, the vehicle, like in the, like the bed, the, the truck bed area of the vehicle. So I guess it's very portable, but I can't imagine it's very stable. I, I think you'd have some vibration issues and... Uh, you know, a fairly narrow field of view. So that, that vibrating might be a little annoying. I'm just, I keep trying to think that there's somebody that there's, there's one person out there that this works for. And I'm trying to imagine um, they're like a cross between somebody from the Adams family and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's very interesting. And, uh, I think the telescope is like, what is it? 10,000 euros, uh, and the vehicle would have to be purchased separately. I, yeah. I don't know, but you know what though? 
this kills two birds with one stone. You know the old adage of never buy a car smaller than the largest telescope you wish to own? Well, here you have that problem solved. That's true. Yeah, yeah. This is one way to get some real big telescope uh, power uh, and, and have it portable. So hopefully it warms up. Um, I remember we had a May a few years back where I was out doing some observing outreach at a at a kid's camp. And even in the middle of May, it was like minus six or minus seven. We were driving home. It was just like, really, it's still getting that cold. And I'm I'm really hoping we we have warmer, a warmer spring than that time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You you never really know what we'll like what kind of temperatures we'll get, of course. But um yeah, hopefully it it heats up and and gets to the positive side of the thermometer. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of cabin fever, Chris. I really need to get out and do some observing. And you don't even own a cabin. Imagine how I feel. Yeah, exactly. What are your observing plans for the spring? What are you, what are you plotting about on these, um, ever increasingly sunny, but still cold spring evenings or late winter evenings, I guess we're still at. Well, uh, first off from the backyard, I'm really hoping to observe a number of the, the winter double stars, that are on the RASC double star list um, that I just don't get to observe much in the winter time because of the conditions you and I complain about all of the time. <laughs> so, so I'm hoping to catch uh, some of those double stars before they disappear until, uh, you know, next, next season, I guess, or next fall. Um, so I'm, I'm starting there and then, you know, I'm hoping to get some dark sky observing uh, in April as well as May and those sessions um, will involve a number of things, but certainly continuing to observe um, uh, Omira's hidden treasures uh, list is, is pretty high on my on my list mm-hmm. uh, in terms of priority. Uh, but I also want to start working through a lot of the Malot objects, and um, you know, part of this too is really starting to use the. Um, um, why can't I think of the name now? My digital setting circles anyway. Oh um, yeah. And, and just getting familiar with, with kind of the operation and interface and all of that kind of stuff. The um, Nexus. Yeah. The Nexus. Yeah. Thanks for that. And then, um, you know, what I'm really looking forward to is one of the barriers for me observing in the past, even during like, like warmer temperatures is, is just like the the preparation, right? You know, you have your list that you want to observe, but then as you and I have talked about in the past, I I would usually mark up my star atlas with some post-it arrows and things like that to make my observing session a little more efficient. Um, but that all takes time and preparation and blah, 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 blah. So now with the, the Nexus unit, you know, I really just need that observing list. And even that I can upload into the computer. And it's really now just like, Oh, it's clear outside, haul the telescope out and away I go. So there's, um, hopefully less of a barrier because I don't have to do as much preparation to, uh, to get that stuff out there. Cool. Yeah. So that's it kind of at a high level. Um, you know, as far as like kind of gear and all of that stuff, like I'm, I'm pretty content with everything I have and I don't think I need to do any eyepiece cleaning or anything of that nature. So I think I'm, I'm pretty much ready to go. Um, I, you know, I guess maybe the one thing that I'm, I'm also excited for is, is Wade is Wade, Wade is one of our listeners in Australia and he's putting together a flashlight. Uh, well, he put together a flashlight for himself and he's building another one and, and hopefully sending it, um, at some point here in the, in, you know, the next little while. And, 
then test that thing out over the summertime and and see how it operates. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. I'm pretty eager to see that as well. Yeah, yeah, nothing yet. He he was he's kind of reworking the design. He's, he uh, bought some different switches and the switches had lights, uh, or they were illuminated, I believe. So he was looking at, uh, you know, I guess doing some surgery on, on these switches to remove the lighting and, and just making it, uh, I, I think a more useful or more capable flashlight for, you know, us amateur astronomers. Very cool. Yeah. I'm excited to see that as well. I was going to get one too. And then I thought, well, I got to get this observatory built and I, all my energy has to go into that, but I'm going to be able to check yours out, I hope, and, and see how it works. And then maybe at a future point in time, get that because one can never have enough astronomy flashlights and I wear them out and lose them in the field. And so I'm always looking for my next one. Yeah. Yeah. And his design looks amazing. And and we've, we talked about it on a, an episode a long, long time ago, but basically it had three lights. It had a white light, mm-hmm. uh, a red light and an amber light, all LEDs, and then like a potentiometer or a dial so that you have almost infinitely variable brightness control over those lights. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe there is three switches on it as well. So, you know, you would just toggle uh, which light you want it on. And uh, it looked like a really cool flashlight, uh, certainly, you know, something that would address all of my needs, um, which is pretty basic, right? I really just want a flashlight that you can uh, set to the right level of brightness for your whatever you're doing at that time, but also to have an amber light on there, which is quite difficult to find, actually. Most astronomy lights are always red, yeah. and uh, I just find it harder to read lists and star charts with a red light. It, it yeah. just, my, my eyes don't focus as well as they do with an amber light. Yep. So I'm super excited for this. And I did buy a red slash amber light and I used the amber light so much and flipped back and forth quite a bit that I think I broke like the switch. So now it's just, it's a really good red light, but the amber is, uh, is intermittent. I think a wire has become loose on the bit that attaches to the amber um color the way that wade has designed his it's like all separated so i think he he probably fixed a problem that he didn't yet encounter by building in separate switches for each of those lights because trying to use one switch for multiple lights um i think that causes problems if you use it a lot so i'm really curious to see how his solution works in the field pretty excited about that one yeah me too i think it'll be awesome yeah cool what are you planning to observe in the spring chris Oh man, I got so many different things on here. Observing almost like the last thing I'm planning to do in a way, but I am planning to do some observing, perhaps uh, do a little work on the uh, wide field wonders list for those summer objects. We we did an episode on the winter objects there. It's kind of, I think it's, it's going to be out before this show, but it's getting to the end of winter. It's going to be right at the end of when people can see those things. We'll do one on the summer wide field wonders objects, but I really want to edit that list. Um, anyway, as I mentioned in that episode, I wasn't entirely happy with some of the, the way that, uh, some, some of the things that, that came about with that list and trying to explain to people or, or to other observers, about the nature of observing things sort of in a wider field uh, context is uh, is something I'm grappling with a little bit. So, you know, maybe doing some observing in that direction. 
if I can get Mike to drag his scope out, I, I wouldn't mind trying to take a look at some of those Kemble's 50 to the pole objects. Uh, because recently I've been working with, and I should say been working with, but my friend Blake from the observing committee, he's the chair of the observing committee here at the RASC. He's been editing and getting my positions right and catching a whole host of errors that I'd made in that list um, when I put it together and helping to refine the corrections. Actually, I put the a draft copy just so you could see it, Shane, in the bottom of our notes there. Uh, Blake is entirely... Uh, credit it with actually getting it into this very beautiful sort of PDF or image format and making sure that all the positions and magnitudes and sizes and everything are right. I sort of taken a stab at it, but when I wrote this up, originally it was going to go in the observer's handbook. And then they said that it wouldn't go in the observer's handbook. So I just was like, well, you know, then I just have this list somewhere and we eventually put it up on a website somewhere, but it was just sort of in the backwaters. I don't think, I think maybe one person ever downloaded it. So I never bothered to edit it properly. And I uh, was chatting with Blake a couple of weeks ago and he kind of caught the bug to dive in there and, and help out with it. And he really turned it into something. So kind of looks like a neat list at this point in time. Not sure what your thoughts are, if you had a chance to even take a look at it yet. Well, yeah, we, we talked about this on an episode again, quite a while ago now. I can't yeah. remember which episode number it was. And uh, we spent some time discussing this uh, lesser known list that Lucy and Campbell put together for Northern observers. And I love the, I love the idea of it. You know, it, it targets a part of the sky that even Northern observers, uh, I think often overlook. Uh, I know I do because I'm often very curious about what is sort of fleeting by in the Southern skies that, you know, is only visible during, you know, each season. Uh, and I always think, ah, the stuff in the North is always there. I can observe that anytime I want. Uh, but the, the issue is, is I sometimes don't go back to that Northern sky. I just keep looking South and East. <laughs> and uh, I love that this brings some focus to the, the Northern parts uh, of the sky. Uh, like you said, it does require some aperture for a number of these objects and, and not, not insignificant aperture. Some of this stuff is quite faint. So yeah. it would be, uh, it definitely will, will challenge any observer, I think, uh, depending on the telescope they're using. I think you can start the list with a pair of seven by 35 binoculars. I think to really make a good dent in it, you'd need probably a five inch refractor or an eight inch reflector. And then I really think to, to do the whole list, a minimum of a 12 inch uh, maybe uh, uh, 14 inch is going to be sort of your minimum requirements to, and from a very dark site to see the uh, the faintest amongst these objects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Episode 203 is when we first talked about this just over a year ago, back on March 10th. So the neat part about doing the podcast like this is I can just Google actual astronomy, Lucian Kemble, and boom, episode 203 pops up. So if people want to go back, they can go listen to episode 203 find a little bit more about that and kind of still working uh way on that thanks to blake for his help there working on the rasc observers calendar for 2024 so discovering what we're going to see next year in the nighttime sky is always kind of fun because allows me to kind of plan ahead some interesting eclipse stuff like that uh and arranging some interviews another person i chatted with this week shane is somebody that that you know as Justin, you sold him a couple uh, Nagler 13 millimeter eyepieces. He's going to come on the show. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, trying to think when I sold those, it probably was last summer or maybe fall. It, uh, I can't, I can't remember the exact time, but um, yeah, a fellow Canadian astronomer purchased them and, uh, you know, a fellow Bino viewer as well. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear what he thinks of those eyepieces. Him and him and I did exchange a few emails and, and I, I believe at, uh, you know, first use, he was quite impressed with them mm-hmm. and, uh, always, always enjoy conversations with folks that, uh, Bino view because there's not a lot of us. Yeah. There, there should be twice as many, shouldn't there? Uh, well, I would hope. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, he had an interesting trip a few weeks back, I guess, once, once this podcast airs, he went over to Starbase. Well, he went to Japan Mm -hmm. and over in Japan, there's a store called Starbase and it should be called Takahashi Central because it's basically a telescope store for Takahashi telescopes. And they have a few Celestrons and, and, uh, Skywatchers and a few other things, but I think the majority of the gear in this little telescope store is just all things Takahashi. Is I think that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it is. And if if you do some like reading about this store, even on I think cloudy nights, um, one of the one of the other cool aspects of this place is uh, you can get that Takahashi gear for uh, a lot cheaper than you can here in North America or I think even in Europe. Uh, probably because you're closest to the source there, but uh, you know, if you ever have a, a desire for Takahashi gear and you're in the neighborhood, that seems like the place to go. And he did buy a couple Takahashi telescopes when he was there, as a and a of- bunch of eyepieces, uh, the the TOEs, I believe. Oh, wait, Three of wait. Them. It's a teaser. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. The other thing I was chatting to Justin about, this was uh, maybe a couple months ago, had a couple topics, was he's also an owner of the AZEQ6 and had sent me some wild photos of the places he's dragged that rig. Now, this is not a lightweight mount, but he's dragged his mount and tripod to like, you know, along in his car to like mountain top lookoffs and all kinds of different places. He does quite a bit of astronomy outreach with it. So that was interesting. He's running a 10 inch mead, Schmidt on that in conjunction with, I think a hundred millimeter Takahashi. And then the other thing that he does is a lot of public outreach and observing with the uh, university of British Columbia astronomy club, I think it's called, which I really wasn't that aware of, but uh, I'll be curious to hear about that group as well. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a great conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So that's kind of a little bit about my plans. Uh, spring is galaxy season. So we're out of the Milky way, which is sort of my favorite stuff to, uh, look at. I was chatting with, uh, Orion optics UK this past week because they have lightweight reflectors. I've been thinking about maybe getting like a 10 inch lightweight reflector. I I don't know what I'm going to get. I keep flip-flopping between whether I should get a Schmidt Cassegrain or a reflector, but really like my wide field of views. And I think an 11 inch Schmidt Cassegrain maxes out at about a degree. So that's pretty tight for my observing style. So I might end up getting a reflector. I don't know. I really should just get this observatory built and then figure it out after that. But when I was chatting with them, I found out they have a new telescope series called the ideal series, which uh, I think fixes some of the um, challenges that uh, I think they're minor challenges that their scopes had had, which were uh, some culmination uh, challenges when, you know, 
throwing the telescope into the back of the car and driving long distances because I never really read any reports of them having the uh, challenges with uh, alignment, but they said they've developed a new mirror cell, they've developed a new focuser, they've got a stiffer tube, a few things like that. Same optics though, but I was just curious to see. They've got like this, they call it a galaxy gray. It's sort of this gray color, which at first isn't maybe as eye-catching as white. However, there is a big advantage to making a telescope gray, Shane, and I think that would be that uh, it's not reflecting light back at you. So you're going to help with your dark adaption and seeing faint stuff at the eyepiece. Yeah, yeah. And because you have it in in an observatory, you don't have to worry about it attracting the sunlight and, and you know, kind of heating up the tube and the mirror during the daytime. So uh, yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. I did not know about this. It looks, uh, I, I kind of like the the paint, that flat sort of matte gray. Yeah. And it says here, uh, so the, the ideal range comes standard with our impressive one sixth PV optics. Optional upgrades are available on every model to one eighth PV and one tenth PV to heighten your experience of the telescope in the night sky. So uh, it looks like you might even get the Zygo report for that too. So, you know, this is, um, you know, this has some high end op- uh, like options, I guess, too. You yeah. can really get some, some quite nice uh, mirrors in there. Hmm, very I, interesting. Yeah. I've read, I've read a lot of interesting reports on their scopes. The majority of them are, are pretty good. Um, I think some people have had some, you know, challenges, like pretty minor challenges from what I can, what I can see where like a couple of people wanted to remount the finder scope or just different things like in shipping. I think I read a couple of people had some weird shipping challenges. And of course, like the, one of the regular challenges with buying any kind of even semi-custom gear, and this sort of falls in between mass production and custom. This is right in the middle. It's sort of not totally custom, and it's not totally mass-produced. They're, they kind of, from what I have been able to gather and I've watched their videos, is that they sort of machine grind everything and then kind of finish the polishing by hand like very quickly. So you're getting something that's been touched by human hands. It's It's been somewhat customized by your selection of, I think they probably just produce a lot of optics and then they just categorize them, whether they're one sixth, eighth or 10th. And so you are able to customize it more so than what you would just buying a regular mass produced telescope. Um, and then I think because of that, yeah, it they don't necessarily just have them 100% in stock. So you place your order and then as they're producing equipment, your telescope gets produced along in line with a variety of other scopes. So, you know, it's not sitting on a shelf necessarily that they're going to just pull it off and ship it to you like maybe a mass produced scope. You're going to place your order and then you're going to wait probably about like two or three months or something like that. Um, they They gave me like a general timeline, but... I'm just giving people like my own personal experience with ordering similar equipment, never dealt with them before, but I'm really curious. I've been curious about getting one of their scopes for a while because they are lighter weight. Their 10 inch comes in around 25 pounds, which is they're about five or six pounds, maybe seven pounds lighter than uh, mass produced 10 inch because they use uh, rolled aluminum instead of rolled steel. And of course, with that comes some, uh, some thinner sidewalls. So you have to be a little bit careful with your tube rings. And I think that's what they were dealing with when they were talking about uh, the alignment and and this ideal scope, I think is a couple pounds heavier. And as such, I think that uh, they're making it a little bit stiffer to work with that alignment. But from what I've read, 
the people who who buy these and use them is you know people like us you just have to be a little bit careful especially when you're ordering like a custom piece of equipment that you know if you are going for really really lightweight you might be dealing with some things like being very careful with the sidewalls or just you know you're really going to have to uh get used to doing culmination and alignment and stuff like that so anyway i'm very curious in those instruments and uh yeah maybe that would be in my future because i think the cost of that even shipped uh from the uk to canada is going to run a, a few bucks cheaper than uh, than getting a schmidt castle here in canada anyway so that, that might, that's sort of a leading idea for me right now yeah. And, uh, they have a, a limited time launch offer of a 10% discount, which is pretty cool. Um, and one thing I've noticed with astronomy gear is it, it never really gets cheaper. And in fact, oh. usually the, the launch prices are usually the cheapest you'll ever see it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I've countless examples like my, uh, explore scientific twilight two mount that I used to have. I think I paid $600 for it brand new and it's quite a bit more. In fact, I don't even think they make it anymore, but another example was the, uh, Celestron AVX, uh, EQ mount. I, I had one of those in my observatory for a couple of years. And I think I bought that for around $700 brand new. And yep. now I think it's like 1200. Yep. Um, so this stuff just gets more and more pricey and, and uh, if anybody's interested in these telescopes, this is probably the the best time to buy them. Uh, do you know though what I, I see? Like there's ideal six and six L, eight, eight L, so yep. on and so forth. What is the L? Long, what is that? Sorry, yeah, longer focal length. So I think like uh, the uh, the eight is uh, f four point five. I think the L is f six or six point three or something like that. And that just goes. I think like they're twelve inch. VX is F4, and then the 12 VXL is going to be like F53, and the 10 is like, I think, F4.8 in the regular, and then the L is like F6 or 6.3, something like that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this is a neat option. Um, keep us posted if you decide to place an order. Yeah, it might be a little bit. I got a kind of work out a few things, but I mean, I need an observatory to put this in, right? So am I getting a little bit ahead of myself? I think I might be. I think I need to just get the observatory built and start using it with with my equipment that I already own, right? I mean, you know, but it would be nice to have a big scope in it one way or another and to, uh, you know, really be able to take a look at some of the fainter galaxies and that sort of thing without having to like drag a big telescope around. But anyway, just some of the things I've been thinking about. Anything else you've been thinking about for observing in the spring sky or observing in general, Shane? No, I just can't wait to to get back to it and start collecting some photons with my eyeballs. All right. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, uh, everybody, for listening. Shane is going to go off and replace his eyeballs to collect photons. If you want to support the show, there are two main ways to do this. We are on Patreon for financial support. We also appreciate you sharing the show within your orbit of your astronomical community. We always enjoy your observations, questions, and any photos that you might take. Please send them to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.